When life throws you a curveball, how are you going to handle adversity? Welcome to the Fearless Mindset Podcast, where you're about to go on a journey as I interview security, business, and entertainment leaders on what it takes to stay fearless. I'm your host, Mark Ludlow, and enjoy today's episode. All right, folks, this is uh, Mark Ludlow, and I'm very fortunate and honored to have Mike Trout with us today on my podcast. We're just launching this. this is all a new venture for me. And uh, I've worked with Mike. Mike and I worked together, I think, what, four or five years ago for a world family in the Beverly Hills? Yep. And just had the experience to work under his leadership there on that detail. I think that thing went three months, I believe. And it was, uh, <laughs> you tell about him shaking his head how fun that was. Seemed to go forever. <laughs> I learned a lot from Mike and, uh, you know, his pedigree speaks for itself. Um, he spent an entire career in the Air Force, United States Air Force, and then he ventured off and I guess you got uh, recruited by the CIA to become a CIA agent, correct, Mike? CIA special agent, which I sort of went into the, the uh, special police officer uh, funnel, if you will, to the agency, which a lot of people do, right. uh, and then became a special agent. We could talk about that later. Yeah. Sure. And then uh, what he's known for is uh, his endorsement on his book called The Protected, which I got right here. And I read through it. He autographed it for me. And uh, I just uh, it's been a pleasure to read because it definitely opened my eyes. And if you're an audience in, uh, in the security industry, um, this will be the book you need to read to understand what's going on in the corporate arena. And Mike covers it from A to Z. And... Uh, I got that endorsement from George Tennant. You were in charge of George Tennant's detail and his uh, keeping his family safe, as he puts it. And uh, Mike did that for several years. And uh, yeah, it was uh, quite an honor to work with them. And uh, that Beverly Hills detail is like, I think they fired 50 people in the first two weeks that I got on that thing, fired two teams, one driving team. And we got on there and it was like, whoa, grab on the rope and hold on tight. But um I'm going to, uh, I read the part of the book, the author's note in your book, Mike, about, um, I just kind of put my own notes here. Um, most people don't understand the journey the author has to go through in writing a book. And under the author's note, you had a, a former colleague and a coworker that asked you how long it took you to write that book. And you said with a smile, 30 years. Go ahead and elaborate on that. <laughs> Uh, Mark, th thanks a lot for having me on the podcast, number one, for the introduction. One, Just one correction. Uh, I was an assistant team leader on yeah. George Tenet's protective detail, uh, not the detail leader. A um, couple of different runs up for myself, but uh, but appreciate that. And thanks again for the intro. Yeah, no, uh, I don't think you can write a book, you know, especially about a career or a profession and hit all the points unless you've lived through it. Right. And that's going to take you a few decades. Could be a couple of decades. Uh, for me, it was about 30 years before I began to think about writing a book. Um, but that 30 years, just like yourself, you begin to think about different incidents, different situations, different scenarios, different training. And next thing you know, you've probably got enough information for a book. Um, having, having the information is not the hard part. The hard part's weaving it all together into a book. Uh, but I appreciate your mention about Mr. Tennant's uh, endorsement. Uh, to be honest, uh, he may never know this, but I think he made the book better, sure. not because of his endorsement, but because of the pressure I was under to write a better book. Wow. Uh, the book was probably ready to come out about two years before uh, he agreed to endorse it. Wow. And to be quite honest, I, I read the book, 
and my wife did a lot of work uh, for me and with me on editing the book, and we both sort of took that time, looked at the book and said, it's not worthy of Mr. <laughs> Tennant's endorsement. <laughs> so uh, pressure was on to go back and make it a better book, but I appreciated that opportunity, and um, so yeah, his endorsement made it a better book just because it put more pressure on me to to really dive deeper into it and, and do a better job writing. And if someone had told you from day one as a uh, as an agent in the CIA, 30 years later, you'd be writing a book, what would you think to yourself at your age of 25 or whatever age you were then? Would you say, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't think, uh, I, I thought maybe in terms of a, of a fiction book, sure. uh, because you see a lot of things when you're in an organization like the CIA, um, that might spark your imagination to write a fiction book, but to write a nonfiction book about your craft, I thought that's a long shot. Never really thought about it. A, uh, as I mentioned, when I made the transition from the Air Force um, to the CIA, I thought I brought with me a, a fair amount of experience and and tools in a toolbox, and really had a good head start to being a, a special agent uh, for the agency uh, on the protective detail for the director. And uh, I mentioned in my book, I think it was my interview, it, it, it took about five minutes for that interview process to prove me wrong. Uh, wow. What I thought I brought with me was still not enough. So to think you have enough uh, material, enough experience uh, to write a book your first few years at the agency, I, I would say that's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> unless you're writing about a particular event sure. or, or a particular situation, you might have, uh, you might be able to pontificate enough on that for two or three hundred pages but uh no i had no vision had no desire uh, to write a book while i was in the agency that this desire came much later once i left the agency so a lot of maturity and journeying yeah, and absolutely. Those hundreds of stories you tell that i read through that book of stuff like how did he ever make it through that the bombings that you heard at the airport in germany and just the countless stories is just uh remarkable and just like uh, that should be, this should be the book that you have in an EP, Executive Protection Training Course. I would highly recommend that be in a curriculum. It's just, that's that good of a book. And I'm I sure. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mark. And I think the stories, you know, I, it was a tough decision to even put stories into it because the book is really for practitioners and for, to be quite honest, the book, the main motivation to write the book was for principals, those who we protect. Right. Because they're often left out of the conversation of why we do certain things and how we do certain things. So in order to think about that, uh, I had to really think about the principles and what did I, what did we want to get across to them as a group of practitioners. Right. Um, but uh, so, yeah, a lot of different motivations for writing the book. But, uh, you know, the one main one was to, to help principals understand what it is we do and why we do it. Yeah, it's weird. When I was reading through it. You know, I was going back to my days working at XYZ client in Silicon Valley, which I had signed on disclosure agreements. So I can't tell that, but I could relate. I, I was so relatable being a practitioner, operator, and on the ground down there in the Bay Area. It's just uh, there's so many things that correlated just in you know the few chapters you covered in that, especially and in I, programming. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's your point. That was my point of putting the stories in. It wasn't to glorify anything that I've done. Sure. It was to... To, if I'm teaching a topic or talking about a topic, I wanted the reader to understand and get a visual of that topic. Right. So the best way I could do that was to write a story that related to that. Mm -hmm. And whether it was a story that I was involved with or other stories, there's a few stories in there that's not about me, 
Uh, but it's about other individuals. Um, so I think, um, I think hopefully that gives the reader a little bit more visual concept of the content we're trying to get across to them. That makes sense. I, you know, the uh, page 107, I think it is, or 102 in your uh, layers of security diagram. Um, you know, we're in 2020. It's kind of crazy right now. We're in election year. I mean, the elephant's in the room. We know what do we know. In your professional expert opinion, what is the most uh, significant part of the layer of security that you put in that diagram in your book? What do you feel the most thing, most security operators, agents, or program managers should be focused on right now in 2020? Uh, Mark, you're putting me on the spot here. I, uh, I don't think it's one thing, and I think that's why there are layers. You know, I, I think it's critical. Those layers really weave together to form the whole program. Right. If you take one or two layers out, uh, it's like removing the foundation from your building, from your house. You're yeah. going to have issues. Sure. So I think, you know, you could sit there and say that I think maybe the, um, you know, the, the intelligence is, a, is an important aspect. Intelligence gives us hopefully that information of right. maybe pre-announcing of an attack or, or seeing, catching surveillance or understanding what's going on with social media. Maybe that affects our principle. So could I take that out and say that it's more important to have physical security around the office right. um, or the residence? No. So I, I, I fairly, I don't think there is one single most important element of that layer because I think they all really work together to form one layer, like a Kevlar. Right. Kevlar is many pieces of layer. Exactly. If we tuck certain layers out, it's yeah. not effective. Yeah. So it's kind of similar to that. Sure. Now, you mentioned social media. Uh, is that a, a big thing right now with the misinformation coming in from the left and you have the right and you got all this information? Is social media the Achilles heel right now in the culture, you think? I think it, you know, this is just one person's ex opinion. I almost think it's going to be a failed experiment. Interesting. I really do. I, I got a feeling we're continuing to go down the road where you know, maybe other countries will do it before us. China has, Russia has to a degree, Iran. Right. You know, there are certain countries clamping down on what they will and will not allow in terms of social media. Sure. Um, obviously, social media does a lot of good, hands down, does a lot of good stuff. Right. Uh, but I think we haven't seen or we haven't really been able to measure how bad it, it, it does in terms of, you know, false information. You know, I think the first time we see a major incident that involves a, a large loss of life right, involved right. with misinformation, I think we're going to have to take a hard look. You know, how do you get into censorship of that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have no doubt that the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world and Facebook and all the other brilliant minds who came up with a lot of these um, social media platforms, they're probably scratching their head too at some point going, I didn't quite see it. Yeah. Becoming this animal that we can't control. If you look at Facebook, you know, I was part of a um, an article we put together uh, years ago about whether or not Facebook is becoming a nation state themselves. They're so big. I mean, they could, as a platform, they could, if not managed right, change an election or allow an election to be changed. Sure. So to have a company that has that level of power comes a great deal of responsibility Absolutely. and I think the decision is still out on all of these platforms whether or not they can properly manage it with right. the influence of 
foreign nations coming in and, and having a heyday on those platforms. So I don't know. I, it, it's interesting. It's, I'm probably getting, I'm getting beyond my skis on that topic, just a personal opinion. But I, at some point in time, it may be a failed experiment. We'll see what happens. That makes sense to me. Um, so something that came through my mind while you're explaining all that, um, you know, I think the conversation right now is what the heck is going on with that Beirut, Lebanon. I've seen so many videos of that explosion. It looked like an A-bomb going up, blowing a hole in the, the port there. Any, any intel you got from your sources on what that was all about? What is that? I, I think pretty much we've seen the news accurately describe what happened. Now, there's probably some details that we may not be aware of in terms of the Russian uh, ship, the Russian owner of this material, uh, who it was being delivered to when it was seized or was it truly seized? Why was it stored so long in that port? But I do have a friend of mine who did an assessment in that port about a year ago. And he said they highlighted this and they're not the only ones. Uh, so uh, incompetence, um, lack of management, okay. Hezbollah saying, no, you're not moving it. I have no idea. I mean, it will, it'll come out. It'll be interesting to see and it'll probably be a great book. Um, but it's a tragedy to see what happened in a city that's already in a country that's already struggling to see that level of an explosion and, and, and uh, it's pointing and sad. For it is. It is. Uh, you know, I think anytime you have a loss of, of innocent life on something like that, that was preventable. Uh, it's right. extremely sad. Exactly. But I'm sure so, more will come out. Just got to wait patiently for the information to flow out. Um, do you think was that a nitrate? I heard nitrate and explosion and just caused that explosion to blow up like that. I yeah, I think you know what I understand. It was a uh, fire at a fireworks factory nearby. Which again, you know, you put your thinking hat on. Would you ever have that amount of ammonia nitrate stored near anything that was flammable? Probably not in a thousand years. You know, that should have been either been stored somewhere out in the desert or far away from population, and right. probably not in those in those amounts. Right. Um, if you look at golf courses and other different uh, farms that store that material, there's a pretty heavy requirement of how, how much you can store. You uh -huh. would never be able to store that amount. Right. Uh, and this is the reason why. So hopefully this will be an example for other countries and companies to rethink their storage, exactly. rethink what's close to it as we do our all hazard risk assessments of a, of a project or a company, you know, yeah. Uh, how close is the train tracks to something like this? I, I can't even imagine the theory of sitting around a table and go, we have a fireworks factory over here and we have, you know, what was it? 20,000 uh, pounds of nitrate, you know, less than a half a mile away or probably less than a few hundred yards. Makes no sense. No sense. I'm not whatsoever. Yeah. I'm going to jump into um, now your position. You're just, uh the vice president of global safety security at discovery land, right? Correct. Um, I just going through some notes, trying to figure out some good questions to ask. And, um, what is the most common request you are receiving to fulfill in your position as vice president there at that organization? Right now, hands down is all COVID related for the most part, okay. for the most part. Um, you know, any, any operation, whether it's a, a fortune 500 company or any company, you've got to think about the resiliency aspect. How do we continue to operate in this environment? Right. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of changing of hats. Um, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was Mike Howard or maybe somebody posted something recently about 
uh, or maybe it's Fred Burton. Okay. But as, as CSOs or, or VP of security and safety, we probably didn't see this coming where we'd have to step up and be more involved with helping to understand this pandemic because most companies don't have doctors or infectious disease part of it. Right. So, you know, one of my responsibilities in the safety component of my role is the medical safety. So I do have a good relationship with doctors and infectious disease doctors to help us understand because we're in multiple countries and right. we have medical evacuations. So we have a very strong medical program. So it wasn't a strong leap for me to reach out to that group and bring them into the discussion and let them lead us um, uh, to make some of the critical decisions we have to make regarding our, our communities, our employees, our operations. So, um, you know, again, you've been around long enough. These experiences happens that makes you think about, or makes you still learn. I'm at 57 years old. I'm still learning something new. <laughs> so, um, a lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy to do this, but, uh, but no, it's a, uh, it's, it, you know, probably COVID is still safety and security is still a big part of what we do. We can't, right. that's one of my fears now. I, I think yeah. the COVID is somewhat of a distraction. Absolutely. To a large degree of where some of our focuses should be, whether it's in the Intel, it's in the law enforcement. Right. Um, uh, it's a concern of mine. We're really, truly focused on COVID. And uh, in my role, I can't be so focused on COVID that I'm not also focusing on the safety and security aspect of my other responsibilities. But uh, it's definitely uh, it's definitely been a lot of work, that's for sure. I can imagine. A lot of late nights talking to doctors and trying to interpret what they're telling you medically. A lot of Dr. Google. A lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of research. I mean... Now we're here, I hear a lot of EP teams are grounded across the country. No one's moving around. What do you see the adaption of exec protection agent or the protect practitioner 2020 and 2021 since the, we're seeing a huge shift and change in the industry and what we've been doing? I think there's two, there's two things. If I was back into managing a team, you know, what would you be doing right now and then leading into 2021? Um, you know, training, I'm a big fan of training. Yeah. And um, training can be just yourself or a couple of people. So I don't think COVID stops us from training. Right. Uh, if EP teams are not training right now and taking advantage of this opportunity and they're just staying at home and working on a keyboard, you're probably wrong. You're right. Probably, you're probably wrong. Because exactly. um, we often complain. That was one of the big complaints I had when I was, you know, with a lot of teams or even managing teams. Guys saying, I don't have enough time to train. You know, Mike, when are we going to go get the train? Well, now's the time to go train. Exactly. So if you're not training, you're, you're probably wrong. Uh, so I think that's a good aspect or a good, you know, sort of element to be concentrating on. And the other thing is we are going to come out of this. Absolutely. And our, and our principals are going to start to travel quite a bit. Sure. And I would say they're going to travel a lot. If you're in a corporate CEO detail and that, that CEO hasn't been out to visit his offices and his operations globally, right. get ready. It's going to be madness. This is going to be madness. The executives are going to go on a full launch, and this is going to ramp up pretty quick. So, you know, resources, do you have enough personnel to that? Are you having conversations with your executive team? What is the plan? Are you going to be ramping up pretty fast? Right. Um, you know, do you have enough team members? Uh, how do we handle the COVID travel? Um, and I think right now we still have probably, in my opinion, another year of, of, of some of these restrictions. The stipulations re regarding COVID. 
Um, so how do we come out of that? So I think it's a discussion teams have to have. And I think the other thing, and Mark, and you're aware of this as well, because I think you and I went back and forth on this recently. <laughs> yeah, we did. There's, there's, um, there's been a lot of poor decision-making in the last year or two Absolutely. With, with our security professionals. Right. And I think now is a good time to take a step back and evaluate your program and evaluate your sort of your, your philosophy, uh, your protocols, okay. uh, your methodology for what you're doing. And, you know, you may have to do some adjustment. And some of that adjustment may run across your tactics, your procedures, or maybe your ethics. It's, it's all across the board. Okay. And I, and I think that fits into your fearless mindset. Yeah, and I, I, I right. thought about that when you were talking about the title of it, and I love the title. I love the, the topic, fearless mindset. Appreciate but fearless it. doesn't, fearless isn't just your ability to handle a high stress situation. I think fearless also applies into your ability to make good decisions. Absolutely. And uh, so I think your topic, you have a good topic, but you're, there's two topics. There's two parts mm -hmm. of that. There's the mindset, which is important, right? And then the fearless component. Yeah. And fearless is not just EP operators, security, military, first responders. It's also parents and teachers and doctors exactly. and construction workers. So that fearless component is a very interesting conversation. I think you'll have fun with. Yeah, it's uh, it's been crazy. Just the environment we're in and everybody's, of course, locked in that state of fear because they don't want to get sick. When's the vaccine going to be made? How about therapies? When's it going to happen? When can we go back to work? You know, everybody's you know, paralyzed by fear because they don't know if they're going to pay the mortgage or, you know, pay their bills, provide for their family. So we're in crazy times in our country. So yeah, thanks for the compliment and uh, the uh, accolades on that. I'm just like, this is all a new venture and like, got to recreate the real. Everybody sitting at home, might as well do something. Absolutely. Well, good for you. I'm glad you did this. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. But I think we're, are we wrapping up there, Christopher? Okay. Um, yeah, another question I have is um, with all your high net worth clients that you have at Discovery Land, how are their security needs changed aside from COVID-19? Are they just all paranoid from COVID-19 and getting sick? Is that kind of the gist of it? If I could generalize that, that comment because the same way you have, you know, the non-disclosures and the, the privacy aspect of it. But I think um, – if I could generalize, it's the uncertainty. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's the fear factor. They don't know what they don't know. Right. And um, if, if you know one thing, those with a lot of money like to be in control. And they like, Absolutely. They yep. like to have that. So they're, they're in a situation where they're not in control. Uh -huh. uh, they can't say, you know what, we're just going to fly to Europe. Well, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, you're not. You know, we're just going to go to our, our home in, in uh, the Bahamas or visit with somebody. Uh, no, you're not, because they're not going to let you in. So, yeah. they're they're in a position where they have to be almost like everybody else. Um, you know, they may have a big staff that helps them through this pandemic <laughs> to a degree, maybe not. Right. But I think it's it's just that fear of the unknown and how do I change my mm -hmm. how do I get my head around? I have a lot of money, I have a lot of power, but I can't do what I want to do. So right. they're just like the rest of us, you know, they're, they're looking to being told no. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, for, for some of these people that may be tougher than you and I, what we're going through. Uh, exactly. yeah. yeah. So I'm going to wrap this up. I know your time is very valuable. If you haven't read this yet or Amazon, is that correct, Mike? Amazon's fine. Yeah. 
And uh, I'm sure he's got a stack of books to sell, but worth the read. You'll learn a ton. And um, it's been a pro honor and privilege to have you on my podcast. You're my first one. And you got me over the nervous sector. You do this normally and naturally. So I'm like getting used to this. Uh -huh. Mark, you did a good job, and again, thank you. It's an honor to be here on your first podcast, and uh, I think as a former or former Marine or still a Marine, as you guys say, <laughs> you know, it, it would be, uh, we've missed the opportunity to kind of give our condolences to the Marines that we just lost in, in San Diego. Right. The amphibious uh, training, that's, that's another, that's another uh, topic of mine that, that I find frustrating sometimes. It's a number of... Uh, you know, good soldiers we lose in training. Absolutely. So and uh, while the while the training is important, and we have to have that sharp skill set. I hate it when we we see uh, our soldiers and Marine sailors, airmen, uh, you know, die from a training accident. That's just so unfortunate. So, exactly. That's really, so, I should I should think about maybe with Christopher to maybe watching something just of that subject matter. Yeah. I, I think so. I, I think so. Yeah. But uh, my heart goes out to them and a condolences to them and their family and their teammates. Amen to that. Prayers and hearts go out to them, for sure. Sacrificing their lives during training. Absolutely. Mark, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Mike. I'll be in touch. Best of luck to you. Thank you, brother. Okay. Bye-bye.